This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome, friend, to our weekly garden party. We hope you brought along your questions because it's time to dish the dirt. On The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, good morning, my friends. Oh, uh, wait a minute. For the benefit of Charlie Dobbin, listening into the line from Prince Edward County, I should have said, Bonjour, mes amis, Charlie. Comment ça va? <laughs> ça va bien, Frankie. Merci. Et tu? <laughs> okay, I've used up all my grade nine French. So let me explain what's going on. Now, you see, since our last garden show, Charlie has been on a rather extensive tour in the northern reaches of the province of Quebec. Uh, maybe you'd better describe why you went there and what you experienced, Charlie. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, my French was just as lame in Quebec as it is on the radio. <laughs> Thank goodness. I, I did have a friend traveling with me who is originally from Montreal and is pretty bilingual, so I didn't feel like a total idiot, except I was silent. Um, but, but you know what? When I was telling you about this trip last week, I had my geography wrong. I kept saying I was going north of Quebec City, but I really did, wasn't that far north. I was a good 10 hours east of my home in Prince Edward County, so right on the edge of the Gaspé, actually. Uh, Reefer Gardens, well-known Reefer Gardens, or in Quebec, known as Jardin de Métis, en français, has been on my bucket list for years. And honestly, it didn't disappoint at all. There were lots of colorful perennial flowers against a backdrop of the St. Lawrence River, which is like an ocean there. So everything is sur le mer. Um, it's really, really wide there, and you can smell the ocean, and it's cool salt breezes. The tide goes in and out there. I mean, it was just a total relief after the Ontario heat wave we've all been struggling with. Ah, same man the peak. But aren't you recording another TV show this week? Uh, yes, did that yesterday, uh, and that was in Toronto. Uh, just so you know, by the time you spend time in Quebec and Toronto, nobody wants to come near me. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I, I am like a, a pariah, a walking potential COVID, uh, you know, person. So it's uh, I'm being left alone. It's kind of nice. I'm on my own. Everybody's at least 10 feet away from me. <laughs> now, now you know how a skunk feels. Everybody gives you lots of distance, but them and porcupines. Well, hey, I, I know our listeners are going to want to watch or uh, catch all of the healing garden shows that you got coming up. So we'll give you folks lots of info of when and where in just a little bit. Meanwhile, Charlie, back at the homestead, how are things progressing there? Well, that heat wave has sure slowed down everyone who's outdoor laboring, doing physical labor, because, you know, it's a safety issue. It's just been way too hot. People are keeling over in the heat. So everything's kind of been postponed at my end. Uh, we added another week on, so it's technically, theoretically, crossing my fingers, uh, greater excavator starts on Monday, like next Monday, and that, you know, Monday after the show is, is broadcast, and then plants, et cetera, are all being confirmed to come in the following few days afterwards. So, pretty excited. We are, we are moving forward. Well, 
Hey, we're remembering back to last weekend how hot it was. We had the best time here in the farm. My eldest son, Kelly, and family came out camping on the farm for day, well, four days, actually. Had a, a great time uh, Friday night, a delicious lobster dinner. All three of Kelly's kids were here. And what a wonderful time. Even had a laughter-filled game of balderdash. And watched <laughs> on Saturday night, we watched the UFC fights. It was just great. Oh, man, that sounds wonderful, especially the lobster part. Yeah, you and I, a lobster dinner. That goes in my bucket list. We'll do that. Yeah. But right now, we better clear the decks uh, for some words from our sponsors, right? Yeah, but not before we remind everyone that because of the pandemic, we are not taking live phone calls. We can only answer email. And we're asking you to be part of next week's show by sending your question to Charlie. And here's your address, c.dobbin, that's D-O-B-B-I-N, at mzmedia.com. And as well, you should know that this show was recorded last Wednesday for broadcast this morning. Okie dokie, we're going to take our first break top up our cups of coffee, and come back to let Charlie answer your questions right here on The Garden Show from Zoomer Radio. Daffodils and daisies, bluebells and begonias, forsythia and foxgloves, marigolds, magnolia, lavender and lupins, dahlias, delphiniums, stalks, fox, hollyhocks, tulips and sweet williams. You've picked the right place for everything floral. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, Charlie, let's get to the question sent in via email. And here's one from Helen Lloyd, longtime listener from Port Dover. She says, hello, Charlie and Frank. Would appreciate your comments as to the almost non-existent smoke on my smoke bush. It seemed very late this spring before showing any signs of the new growth or leaves sprouting. It now has foliage, but very sparse smoke patches. Uh, she attached three photos to show you uh, a neighbor's bush compared to hers. Would appreciate hearing your comments, Charlie. Mm -hmm. She's absolutely right. It is, Helen, a pretty tall and pretty scraggly smoke bush. So it's called smoke bush because the flowers look like smoke. And I'm not sure if you could see the photos, Frank, or not. But um, Yes, I did. Yeah. Yep. So Helen's shrub has not been pruned. So it's it's got big, long uh, extents of branches with no leaves and then little clusters of, of leaves and then, you know, another extent of branches. So here's what you've got to do. And what I do is probably wait towards the end of the summer. So maybe late August. Prune your shrub down uh, by as much as a full third or more, even as much as a half, if you're willing to wait till next spring. But you're going to prune down to just above where there's a, a little cluster of leaves growing. Um, it's a little too warm through this now. We don't do any radical pruning in July usually. But later in the summer, early next spring, get that thing pruned down. And what you're going to find, particularly if you get some fresh, uh, whether it's homemade um, compost or you know, some composted manure, get some good organic matter around the base of that plant. Just very gently cultivate in, you don't have to go deep, but just get some, some good organic material around the plant, get it uh, pr pruned down like that. And you're going to find next year, it's going to sprout and be a lot bushier. And it also should smoke better uh, based on, on weather and access to nutrients. So um, that's what I'm thinking. It just seems a little bit like you, you haven't paid much attention to it. And they are not a naturally good looking plant. We, we really do have to stay on top of pruning them and don't be afraid to prune it late summer early spring all right 
boy, her, her neighbor has really done a magnificent job because that, when it's in full bloom, mm -hmm. it's absolutely gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah, you hardly even see the leaves. When, they, when it's really smoking, it's just a, a mass of smoke. And they're, they're very popular plants. They grow fast. What I think is so neat about them is when you do prune them, very, very strong smell of creosote. So remember the, the railroad ties, they used to dip them in creosote. That's where it originally came from. Oh, okay. Uh, here's a note from Chris uh, Takas, and it's about uh, penstemon seeds. Hello from Chardon, Ohio. That's uh, 10 miles south of Lake Erie, 35 miles east of Cleveland. She says, I've enjoyed your program for years, having found it while driving into Cleveland on a Saturday morning. Now I listen to the podcast while I work at home repairing books. You both keep me at my workbench, entertained and informed for hours. This is my <laughs> first time contacting you since you usually answer my questions during your show. Well, you guys uh, know, uh, Joel and Charlie, that I don't have a, 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 a bell to ring, but got one of those little clickers. <laughs> Remember those? Anyway, yeah. that that is for Chris. And uh, she says, I, I have uh, much love. Penstemon, or and in parentheses, husky red, living in a container in my front yard. Shares the pot with a hive of ants, and they've uh, survived at least 10 years together. This year, I placed some more pots to uh, check on location before filling, and last week, I noticed some small seeds in the empty pot, and she came to realize that the seeds were coming from her purple smoke tree. And her question is, why don't I have a thousand smoke trees growing in my lawn? Love the show, Chris. <laughs> right. So this this was pretty funny because you're right. It did turn out as two separate emails. Uh, the first email, Chris thought that those, for sure, those seedlings were going to be penstemon and how how to propagate those from the, the little seeds, or actually not seedlings, but seeds. And then a follow-up email said, nope, just discovered that those are smoke trees. So... <clears throat> How come you don't have a million and one? Well, the way it works to get smoke tree seeds to germinate is you have to be mother nature. You've got to mimic nature. And likely what's happening in your yard is that it's not, nature's not being perfectly mimicked in order for those seeds to all germinate. So you're right. They do put out lots of seeds, but they rarely germinate on the surface of the soil in our yards. Here's the sort of four steps to getting smoke tree or smoke bush. Proper name is cotinus, uh, plants to grow. So first you scarify the seeds. So scarifying means putting them into boiling water, getting out sandpaper and rubbing them on sandpaper. Bottom line, you're doing what you can to start breaking the outer seed coat, just not by banging it with a hammer, just a little bit of a, a rub uh, or boiling water or even, believe it or not, sulfuric acid. Um, then you plant those seeds. That whole process takes about 24 hours. Then you plant the seeds. They must sit at 60 degrees Fahrenheit or 16 Celsius for 90 days, keeping moist. After that, you stratify the seeds. So now we stick them in the fridge at 40 degrees Fahrenheit or four and a half degrees Celsius for 90 to 150 days. And believe it or not, those little seeds will germinate after this big long process and you're not getting that naturally happening in your yard. So that's why you don't have a forest of smoke bush all over the neighborhood. And, uh, but you can do, if you want to run through all that, you can get them growing for yourself. Right? Okay. And uh, Charlie, just for, uh, Timing purposes for this segment, I'm going to jump to question number four, sent in by Elizabeth. She sent you a picture, says, hi, Charlie, do you have any idea what might be on this rosebud? A friend sent it to me, and I wasn't sure what to make of it. Thank you, if you can offer any help. 
Elizabeth. It's quite a beautiful photo. I don't know if you saw it, Frank, but it's it's a yeah, I did. Yeah, it's a real macro shot of a rosebud, and you can see a lot of detail on it. Now, it looks to me like webbing on the outside of that rosebud, and whenever we see webbing on a plant, right away we think spider mites, uh, which is likely what's going on there. Now, there is no absolutely no insecticides available to the homeowner for the destruction of spider mites. Uh, but do look really closely. Look to see if you see any evidence of any insects whatsoever. If you don't see any insects, get out your hose and a blast of the hose water will blow off whatever's on that plant temporarily. Um, you can, like I wouldn't just treat it with soap or pyrethrins on principle, unless you see pests. If you see any pests, then do your insecticidal treatment, but not in the heat. You have to do your spraying early, early in the day or as the sun is going down. And then remember, wash off anything that you've put on your plants in the way of pesticides, because it's very hard to leave, hard on the plant to leave that stuff in place. Okay, uh, that brings us to our first break in the show. So Charlie will return with more answers to your email questions. I'm Frank Proctor, and thank you for joining us here on Zoomer Radio. It's The Garden Show. Don't change stations just because the weather changes. Garden tips and advice all year round. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, okay, Charlie, let's get back to our emails. Uh, Aldina says, uh, hi, Charlie and Frank. I was wondering if you could tell me what type of soil I have in my property. It is dusty and very hard for the water to penetrate. The water runs over top of it, never goes down. I thought I'd lay up questions for a little bit since I had the podium on several shows. And you replied to her, Layoff questions? I think not. <laughs> okay. Aldina in Cambridge. Can you help her out with that soil question? Okay. So I, without even seeing Aldina's soil, I can see her soil because I have seen this on many occasions. When a soil becomes dusty and like she said, water doesn't want to penetrate. So that's called hydrophobic. So it's when something tends to repel or fail to mix with water. So hydrophobic soil is a very tired soil. It's probably, um, you know, been gardened for years and years and years. There's been no addition of organic matter over the years. So it's become depleted of anything of quality and value for the growing of plants or the health of the soil. And a really healthy soil is a living soil. So you, in order to have healthy plants, you have to have soil that has life in it. And the dusty, dry soils are inert. They have nothing alive. You need worms. You need fungus. You need bacteria. You need a whole colony, a whole ecosystem in a healthy soil. So how you're going to do that is you are going to start adding organic matter to your soil. So depending on whether it's a garden bed, and of course you can't just add a foot of soil, you're going to start a process every spring, every fall, you're going to start adding a half an inch to your garden beds. Um, that uh, of whatever, composted manure, uh, homemade compost, even leaves. I mean, I was a big fan and I'm, I will be in the future future a big fan in my new garden of collecting my leaves, everybody's leaves in the fall, 
chopping them up with the lawnmower, and then spreading them on the surfaces of all the gardens, two to four inches thick for the winter. And so they're all chopped up small. They will decompose quite quickly. And the more life you have in your soil, the faster everything decomposes. So get on the organic matter, get it just on the surface. You don't need to dig it in. Eventually the worms will come and they'll mix it all up for you. And uh, and you will find your soil will both um, retain water, so water will be able to percolate through but it'll also actually retain water because of the addition of organic material. Okay, uh, next a little note here from, uh, well, it's not a little note, it's pretty extensive, from <laughs> Megan in Willow Beach, Ontario. Hi, Charlie and Frank. I'm a longtime listener and first-time emailer. Oh, no bell, but wait a minute. There's that clicker. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a clap. Somebody's <laughs> clapping in the background. <laughs> I've attached photos of a worm-like creature that annually eats the leaves off my rose bushes. I have had a variety of rose bushes in various garden locations on my property, but these little creatures have found every one of them and eaten their way through every darn leaf. Well, I've tried earth green, or pardon me, green earth slug and bug powder, which worked great on ants, by the way, but it washes away when it rains, and these worms seem to appear as soon as the leaves are free of the powder. I have just purchased green earth insecticidal soap, but the label says not to use it in extreme heat, so the creatures are having a feast right now. In the past, I've tried various natural sprays made of garlic, dish soap, just about everything else, but nothing has rid my roses of these bugs. I trim the bush back and mulch with dried leaves in the fall, but to no avail. The roses themselves do not seem to be affected by this hungry slug. However, they do look rather odd sitting on bald stems. <laughs> yeah. But in saying that, I've lost all but one of my rose bushes over the years, so perhaps long-term the plants are destroyed because of this worm. If you have any suggestions, I sure would appreciate them. I hate to give up a uh, rose gardening, but may have to if I can't find a solution. By the way, these worms do not affect any other flowers in my mm -hmm. garden. Thanks for your help. Love your show. Hope you both stay safe and well. Megan in Willow Beach. Okay, it's a great question, Megan, because you're not the only person with this problem. It's very, very common. And it's it's interesting. So roses, green leaves, the, the slug or larva that you're seeing on the leaves that's chewing up the leaves is very well camouflaged. It's the exact same color of the leaves. And it always sits on the outside margin of the leaves and starts chewing in. Uh, so you start with a regular oval rose leaf and then you come back the next day and sure enough, it's not oval anymore. It's got a little indentation on the side. And if you leave it days later, you're absolutely right. The leaf has, the blade of the leaf is gone. The little, it's called a rose saw fly. So one word, S-A-W, fly, saw fly. Uh, they will eat all the leaves on your roses. And yes, that does ultimately uh, affect the long-term health of the roses. Because remember, the green leaves are all about photosynthesis. And photosynthesis is all about the plant being able to convert sun energy into its own food and carbohydrate so it can grow. Um, so you will slow down growth when you don't have leaves. So you want your leaves. What do you do? Well, <clears throat> you're right. A lot of those sprays won't work. I have tried sitting there with either a soap, like a safer soap, not detergent, but a soap spray that's soap mixed 40 parts 
water to one part soap where you can make it yourself or buy it in that concentration or a simple pyrethrin based insecticide again a liquid sit there and spray 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 watch the little soft flies curl up and fall to the ground that works because they will not climb back up but of course come back an hour later and there's more on the plant the best thing to do believe it or not Get out that little tin can of water with a drop of oil or water with a drop of detergent and pick those saw flies off, pick and squish or pick and drop into the can and you will make a difference. It's, it's a bit time consuming, so get, your, get comfortable, <laughs> bring a chair because you really have to look. They're just so well camouflaged. You really have to look closely from all angles and um, they won't hurt you at all, but they do eat very specifically and only rose leaves until they move on to the next part of their life cycle. And just a quick aside, <clears throat> a friend of mine who struggles with soft flies on her roses and, and has been driven crazy for the last few years and sits there picking them, told me that this year she ended up with a nest of catbirds directly above her rose garden up in the eaves of her house. And the catbirds love soft flies. So she was so thrilled to see that she doesn't have to go out there and pick them anymore. The catbirds are picking all the soft flies off the roses for her. So there's something to be said for gardening in a, in a gentle way where you're not using strong chemicals. You'll find that more and more birds will come to your garden and the more birds you have, the fewer bugs you have. That's the moral of the story. Okie dokie. Um, better at this point in the show, remind folks that uh, you're listening to a program uh, on Zoomer Radio on a Saturday morning. But this show was actually recorded last Wednesday due to the uh, pandemic. We can't go into the studios. We can't accept phone calls, obviously. So we have to do everything by email. And we're asking you to be part of next week's show by sending your question to Charlie. Here's her address. C. Dobbin. That's D-O-B-B-I-N at mzmedia.com. And thank you very much. Okay, next uh, email is from Kelly in Cambridge. Oh, Charlie, uh, I have had a vegetable garden in a community garden for about seven years. It's 10 feet square, raised bed that gets sun all day. Needless to say, during the hot summers, the raised bed gets parched and the soil almost turns to powder. Watering by can makes it impossible to keep it adequately watered. So this year I've applied cedar mulch around the plants. It's really worked well to retain moisture and keep weeds down. But I'm wondering if in the long term it will affect negatively the soil pH and the productivity of the plants. So far, the plants are thriving. Wondering if I should remove uh, all of this at the end of the season. Thank you, Kelly. So I love it. We're getting all these soil questions today. One of, one yeah. of my favorite topics. Uh, you know what, Kelly? Good for you. This is a very, very good story of how effective mulch can be, an organic mulch. So yes, indeed. Less water required because it's helping to retain moisture. Less work required because it's keeping the weeds down. And no, you do not need to remove it at the end of the season. The only thing I would say is when you are putting any of the organic bark mulches around plants in your garden, don't let the bark mulch touch the stems of the plants. So whether it's tomato plants or petunias or, you know, an oak tree, keep the mulch a, a good uh, centimeter or so away from the plants. Put it down two to four inches thick, so five to ten centimeters thick, and it it will slowly decompose. Will it affect the, the pH? Generally speaking, no. Well, yes, it will, but it won't be negative because our natural soils in Ontario are lime-based, so we tend to be on a fairly basic soil anyway. So cedar mulch 
will have a slight impact on lowering the pH, but it will not be dramatic at all. I mean, even the rain that falls out of the sky starts up way up in the clouds as a neutral water, but as it drops through the air, it picks up all kinds of pollution and sulfurs and dioxides and things. So as it gets down closer to the ground, the water that drops is acidic, but very slightly acidic. And again, does it uh, you know adversely affect our plants and our gardens? No. It's fine. So yeah, stay out, stay on it. Keep that mulch coming. Keep those good stories coming about how effective mulch can be. I love it. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, here's a question from Tom Connor in Aurora, Ontario, and the subject is transplanting uh, clematis or clematis. Uh, you say <laughs> clematis, I say clematis. Oh well. He says I have a Jack Manny clematis clematis that I would like to move. When's the best time to move it? Okay, just to be clear, most of us call it clematis, like clamato juice. So, but the but the proper name, way to, to to pronounce it is clematis. That's from the Greek word clema to climb. And of course, clematis is a vine, and it's a very vigorous vine that climbs like crazy. So, best time to move any plants, generally speaking, late fall early spring before any new growth emerges if you're doing this transplanting in the spring when a plant is dormant and we do stressful things like transplanting we minimize the shock so to uh to that so just keep that in you know so kind of a rule of thumb so if you need to move that clematis get the hole prepared in advance dig and make sure it's moist soil around the plant when you lift try and ensure soil travels with the plant attached to the roots get Get it in its new location and remember that clematis, um, you know, the, the vines, the branches above ground are very brittle. So you want to be very, very careful and try and minimize any breakage. If you do end up breaking some of the branches, then trim it down after, you know, you're going to trim it down anyway before you move it, but do another trim after it's in place just to clean up any, any broken uh, material that happened through the transplanting. Okay, um, I have a. I'm going to jump to question number nine from uh, Natalie Zamet, uh, due to time constraints here in this segment. Hi, Charlie. I've listened to your show for years. Always love it via your knowledge. I have a Hoya plant for ten. Have had a plant plant for ten years and it never flowered. I've talked to my cousin in Malta, where the summer is hot and consistent, and his has a multitude of flowers. I'm totally jealous, and he sends me pictures. I love the waxy flowers of this plant. Can you help me, please, to make mine flower? Thanks so much. Best regards, Natalie. So, you know what? This is a bit of a long question. Um, sorry, long answer. Not that long a question. Mm. So I think um, given our requirements to listen and hear from our sponsors, let's do that first, and then we'll come back and talk about the, the, the proper sort of secrets of success with Hoya plants. Oh, Great idea. Thank you so much for that, Charlie. And uh, Natalie, you stay tuned. The answer is coming up shortly here on The Garden Show on Zoomer Radio. Fur and feathers and bugs of all size. There's more going on in the garden than you realize. Should small creatures become a big problem, then you've got The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Okay, Charlie, let's return to the question from Natalie Zamet about her Hoya plant. It's never flowered. 
She's jealous of her cousin's plant in Malta. So how can you help her out? Okay, so here's the bottom line. Um, Hoya, if you can give it enough sun, is an actually a pretty easy plant to grow. So here's what you should not do. Do not ever disturb the plant once buds appear. And the buds appear on these, you know, on the tips, long, long sort of straggly tips of the plant. When Once the flowers have finished blooming, remove them. So deadheading is, becomes one of the things that we, we, um, we typically do, but with Hoya, we don't do that. The flower will naturally drop. You do not need to cut it away. Uh, with Hoya, do not repot ever unless absolutely necessary. It likes to be pot bound. So four tips on what this plant wants. In the winter, just an average temperature, average room temperature, easy, but lots of bright light. You need a southern window or a western window with no shears, no blinds, no nothing. So lots and lots of light. In the spring through to the autumn, you will water more because you'll water based on the plant needing to be kept, you know, water thoroughly, let it dry down, water thoroughly. But in the winter, you'll water far less because the plant's going to use a lot less water. So again, we don't water on the calendar. We water on the plant's requirements. And then the other thing that maybe is happening in Malta that's not happening in your living room uh, here in Ontario is humidity. So do what you can to raise the humidity. You can mist the plant. You can put a pebble tray, a tray of pebbles beneath the plant and keep water in in amongst the pebbles to raise the humidity. Never miss the blooms on the plant, but do what you can just to get the, the ambient humidity around the plant uh, raised. And I think you'll find it will bloom, but just don't love it too much. Don't give it too much water, right? It's a it's a plant that likes to be kept on the dry side. Okay. Here's another question from Aldina in Cambridge. I was wondering what I'm doing wrong when planting or caring for some of my annuals in pots. I bought marigolds and petunias, geranium plus others. I put them in a large pot with good potting soil and water. I also loosen up the root plug before planting. Uh, they also get sufficient light. Any ideas what I might be doing wrong? They're not growing much and I have lost some. I find it discouraging because I'm not getting my money's worth. I have no problem with flowers I start and most of my perennials. Thanks a lot, uh, Aldina. <laughs> we're gonna have to go visit Aldina at some point. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> we're really we've got we've got a lot of information about her garden. I think we we wouldn't even need her address. We could probably just find her place. <laughs> um, so so listen, Aldina, you, the way you started this all sounds perfect. You got fresh soil. You got good plants. Um, I just to double check: are all those flowers in one pot? Uh, keeping in mind that, yeah, we do plant plants closer together in our containers than we do in the ground, but do make sure that you're about four inches apart with each of the little root balls or root plugs that each of these small plants came with. Um, how much light? Well, these are all sun-loving annuals, petunias, geraniums. So make sure they're in at least six hours of direct sunlight daily. So that's a nice bright spot. <clears throat> Now, um, watering, yeah, I said, you know, you said sufficient water and sufficient light. The thing with the potting soils is there really isn't any soil in them anymore. They're soilless mixes. So they're peat-based or core-based, which is a coconut fiber-based substrate that we plant into. And it can be very tough to get the moisture right into the center of those root balls. What happens is, is the soilless mix, when it dries, it shrinks away from the sides of the pot. So you get out your hose, you start watering, the water races down <clears throat> between the root ball and the 
pot, the wall of the pot, and you think, oh, I've done a great job. Look, the water's coming out the bottom, out the drainage hole. But you haven't actually penetrated into the root ball. So make sure that's not what's going on. If that is what's going on, get a stick, get a fork, get a trowel, shake up that root ball a bit, get the moisture into it. And then the most important thing is fertilizer. Those soilless mixes, those lovely, wonderful substrates for growing do not have any fertility. They are inert. They are should be absolutely sterile coming out of the bag. So you need to get yourself some flowering plant fertilizer, follow the instructions on the container and mix it up. We're getting towards, you know, the, the end of July. So our, our window for fertilizing with annuals can carry on right through till frost. But we are going to sh- remember we're not going to keep fertilizing our perennial plants after the end of July. So trees, roses, shrubs, all that. If if we haven't fertilized yet, get on it. That's it. No more after that. We'll just it'll be a one shot deal. But spring is usually the best time to be fertilizing. And I think you'll find your flowers will look way better with the addition of a nice, good quality, blooming type type water soluble fertilizer. Okay. Uh, here's a note from Emil. Uh, my magnolia tree is about 40 feet high, had beautiful blossoms in the spring, and now has healthy looking leaves, but is dripping sticky sap profusely from the canopy on everything underneath. There are little white cottony looking bumps on the ends of many branches. Is this scale? I thought scale mostly attacked the bark. Uh, last time it had scale, I, it was only on the main trunk and the scale was brown in color. I sprayed with Saigon, which did the trick, but now is illegal. However, I had a little Saigon left, uh, did not spray this time, but I've been introducing it into a crack in the bark over the past week. So far, no results. My neighbor cut a couple of his limbs that were overhanging his pool. Could this disease have been introduced through these cuts? Hmm. There you go. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So first off, it's not a disease. It is an insect. Uh, it's likely magnolia scale because again, it's rampant this year again, just like it was last year. Uh, also with all the warmth, it looks like we probably have more than one generation happening this year. So, um, and remember as well, you cannot kill scale unless the nymphs have just been born. Uh, scale builds a little shell around itself with that waxy coating and you, no insecticide gets through there. The question about whether the pruning could have caused some of the problem, yes, pruning is stressful. So depending on how, how and when the pruning was done, yeah, stress can lead to insects. So you know what I would do by the sounds of it? This is a big old magnolia. You do not want to lose it. There's a couple of things going on here. You've got insects. You probably have powdery mildew as well. So I would get an arborist in there. An arborist will not only thin that plant out, properly prune it, but also, uh, probably spray something like horticultural oil on the plant and and that will and it's going to be a two-step process there's not just one treatment you're going to have to pay for two treatments of a proper insecticide to annihilate that scale and again organic matter around the bottom tlc that tree and you'll avoid scale in the future all right good luck with that okay and we have to take our next little break here as we approach our final segment of the show for the garden show on this saturday morning Stay tuned. Charlie's coming back with more info in moments here on Zoomer Radio. This is Zoomer Radio Toronto. CFZM FM and CFZM AM. Owned and operated by MZ Media Incorporated. 
Daffodils and daisies, bluebells and begonias, Forsythia and foxgloves, marigolds, magnolia, lavender and lupins, dahlias, delphiniums, stalks, fox, hollyhocks, tulips and sweet williams. You've picked the right place for everything floral. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. All right, Charlie, here's a, a neat note from Sue Adorjan. She says, uh, hi, Charlie, I usually listen to your show Saturday mornings. I've been an avid gardener since childhood and often hear you confirm things I wasn't sure about. I have a 30-year-old, I have, pardon me, 30-year-old rhododendrons, which have overgrown the interlocking brick that's close to a pool. I was under the impression that you don't prune rhodos. I see some new shoots behind the uh, overgrown branches. However, if I cut those now, I'll be cutting the branches where the buds are setting for next season. So, I've included a picture. What would you recommend? Hmm. Boy, good for you, Sue. It's a rare person that gets to prune a rhododendron in Ontario. We just don't have the right growing soil or even growing you know, climate for rhodos. So nice to hear. Um, what I would do was you have two choices. One is leave that plant alone until next spring. Expect all those buds that will form this fall to open next spring, so you'll have a beautiful show. And right after that bloom period, get out your loppers and remove those old branches down to where you are seeing new growth, which is what you indicate is happening there. And that will expose the walkway along the, the interlocking brick. That's what I would do. Um, now, you're going to follow that branch, like I said, down to new growth or the last little whorl of leaves uh, and keep, you know, do your cutting about a quarter inch above there. And at that point in the spring, you're also probably going to get out a little peat moss, some soil acidifier or rhododendron food or all of the above just to do the, the TLC required to keep those plants fat and happy. And, and you'll find that that pruning back will make them a more dense plant, which is also a wonderful thing because rhodos do tend to get a bit scraggly in Ontario. So yeah, no, good for you, but don't hesitate to prune. You can prune like in September if you need to, but if you can wait, wait till next spring until after they bloom. Okie dokie. Uh, here's a question from Tony Fuard, who really has impressed me. He says, I have a, a pardon me, a hicks you, and then he includes the uh, Latin term for it, mm -hmm. and I won't even attempt to say that. <laughs> he says, planted about 10 years back to provide shade from the afternoon sun falling into the living room. If not during summertime, the AC runs nonstop. The U is helping. It's grown to 12 feet now. I failed to find any info on how far and deep the roots spread. The base is two feet, three inches from the foundation. Is this too close to the house? So it would cause damage. If your advice is to remove it, could you please suggest some alternate plants, preferably not growing to more than 10 feet and, uh, and three feet wide? Thank you very much. Love your show. Continue to be safe. Tony. Thank you for the question, Tony. So, um, you know what? I'm, I, I love Hicks U. It sounds like it was a very good choice. It does a slow growing plant. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's, they can live for a very long time. They can, you know, live to over 50 years old. So remember to keep pruning it, keep it tidy, keep it neat. Uh, pruning, of course, happens when it's actively growing, usually early June. Um, roots on yews are not famous for being a big problem. They're not. So remember, different plants 
have roots, obviously, that grow differently. So some roots will actually grow in a spiral and they'll do crazy things around your um, uh, sump pumps. They'll do crazy, you know, or sump pump, um, you know, uh, extensions off the house. Uh, People with septic tanks can have issues with certain plants like willows and poplars that are cedars even. Those roots will just go seeking water and cause lots of problems. Yews are not like that. Yews are very, very civilized plants. So I think your choice was a good one. Um, I, normally, though, when I think about blocking sun, particularly afternoon sun, from blasting into a home and heating it up, I think about growing a shade tree. So is there any possibility you could consider, you know, any shade tree? It doesn't have to be a big one. It could be something as simple as a crab apple that doesn't get very large or something bigger, depending on your space, that will have leaves all summer. So shade that living room window. And then in the winter, of course, the leaves will drop and sun will come in and warm up your living room. And that's one of the things we love about trees. And then, of course, the roots are far from your house. So I'd be inclined to think about that as a backup plan. But uh, but use are lovely. Um, they don't like waterlogged soil. They don't like salt. They don't like heavy snow. They have a tendency towards getting sunburned or scorched if there's you know extreme sun hitting them on a hot hot summer day. And unfortunately, deer love them. So you know sometimes deer will browse through them. But otherwise, you know certainly wonderful plant and easy to grow. So up to you moving forward. But I'm a pretty big fan of using trees for shade. Okay, uh, let's see. Our question here is from Joy Lambert in Virgil, who sends along a great memory uh, when I was on the radio down there at CKTB. Apparently, she was uh, on the air with me talking about daffodils as, uh, as part of the Canadian Cancer Society fundraiser. And for some reason, we got laughing so hard. We could hard, hardly understand each other. But it is, remind, you know, have you ever laughed in church and can't stop? Well, that was exactly what it was like. Anyway, she says, uh, well, uh, they say third time lucky. Uh, you two have helped the other two times. Here we go. This time, let's go back to those gorgeous thick tomato plants that are being treated with Warner's Special Solution. They are bushy with lots of small tomatoes. Do they need suckers pruned off or just the bottom branches? Mm. Uh, next, yellow and black bugs devouring the cucumber leaves. <laughs> Help. Well, okay, so we don't have time for both of these, but I will tell you, it's up to you how you prune your tomatoes. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of removing suckers, and which is the little growth in the axle between the leaf and the main stem, because I like single-stem tomatoes, and I like the sun being able to get through. Some people let them become a real bushy plant and just let everything grow. Uh, so you still you stake them if you're removing suckers. Don't remove bottom branches on principle, but eventually you are going to move remove some leaves to ensure that the plant gets enough sun so the tomatoes can really ripen. If they're very happy, they tend to be a bit overgrown with the foliage. So um, there's there's my suggestion for tomatoes. And Frank, we're at a racetrack. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll save that question uh, from Joy for next week, mainly because she uses a delicious word, diatomaceous. Uh, wow. We'll explore that word. <laughs> yeah, how about that? I even looked it up. <laughs> but Thank you, Charlie. It's been, been fun this morning. It has been. Thanks a bunch, Frank. Could, I love the way you read these emails, and thanks, everybody, for sending the emails. It's uh, it's a lot of fun doing the show, and I love doing the research. I'm always, always learning. Thanks, Joel. See you all again next week. This has been an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. 
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.